And when I work with my um, domestic violence clients, and I do this a lot with religious trauma too, one of the, the things that we work on first is not getting out of the relationship. It's actually finding your voice again. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Ellen, and this is Holy Heretics. Welcome back, everyone. Today is our last interview of the season, and we have the privilege of really diving deep into a topic all of us in the evangelical community need help with, and that is the topic of religious trauma. We are joined today by Dr. Laura Anderson, who is a licensed psychotherapist focusing on complex trauma, domestic violence, sexualized violence, and our favorite topic, religious trauma. <laughs> she is the co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute and the founder of the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, which is an online coaching practice. And all the practitioners there are trauma-informed and specialize in working with people with religious trauma. So perfect timing on that. We all need that. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here with us, Dr. Laura. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's really wonderful to be here. Okay, Dr. Laura, we are going to all sit on your couch and Perfect. <laughs> get a little get a little therapy going this morning. So before we jump yeah. into all the trauma, how we got here, um, and really all of the particular ways in which fundamentalist evangelicalism has has harmed us. Um, let's start with your story, if you don't mind. Can you share just a bit about you and your faith background and, and what led you to this uh, particular profession and this particular passion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, probably like many of your listeners, um, I grew up in an evangelical fundamentalist home. Um, I was the kid that, you know, we're in church every time the doors were open. I don't ever remember not knowing about things like God and Jesus and hell and heaven and, you know, kind of all of those tenets of fundamentalism. I um, also within that, my dad was a director, <clears throat> excuse me, at an evangelical free church camp. And so kind of in my mid to late elementary school years, my we relocated um, to central Minnesota. So I'm originally from Minnesota. Um, we relocated and actually lived on the premises of the camp. And my dad was um, the director there. So we were a ministry family. Um, I didn't realize it as a kid that that we were because, you know, what kid doesn't love growing up with like a horse corral across the street or a lake down the road or a ropes course or whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of like ideal things that uh, that happened in my childhood in terms of um, just, yeah, being being able to grow up in this kind of crazy environment. Um, there's some other things, too, that happen in terms of just being really isolated and, um Oh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Just, you know, like when you're in a bubble, essentially, mm -hmm. um, that that have had to be unpacked and, and deconstructed since that point. But that was that was all I ever knew um, was growing up in that sort of environment uh, because I lived in Minnesota that 
happens to have a pretty decent education system. I went to public school um, and I did have a year, I think it was like late middle school, where I really begged my parents to homeschool me because I was so scared of being pulled down by the devil. You know, like when Mm. they tell you that the devil can get a foothold in your life or he's lurking around every corner trying to... um, you know, get you to sin and and to do all these awful things. And I was so scared of that, that I begged my parents to homeschool me because I just, I thought this is the only way that I would be able to stay safe, essentially. Um, Also, like uh, evangelizing to my friends sounded like the worst thing ever. (laughs) And so I thought, well, gosh, if I'm homeschooled and I don't have friends that I have to evangelize to, then I'm kind of like killing two birds with one stone. Um, (laughs) So... That's awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> Needless to say, I was not homeschooled. Um, they they said no for a variety of reasons. Probably a good thing. Um, but yeah, so that was my that was my upbringing um, in terms of just kind of this this flavor of how I grew up. Um, I I had an idea. Also, you know, you hear these people who give their testimonies um, in churches and whatnot that they go through this period of time where they're wild and crazy, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and then you know God saves them. And in my limited experience, that was always like you mess around in high school and then. Once you get out of high school, you really start living for God. And so in my mind, I thought, well, that's that's what I'll do. I'll just like mess around in high school. And um, and then once I graduate, I'll be good. I'll start living for God. And and I was just so scared of all the consequences and punishments that I never messed around in high school either. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, sad. but I do. I know. Like part of me now is like, gosh, what would it be like to be a high schooler and, and you know, not be so afraid of going to hell for making a mistake, right? right. Um I, I'll I'll tell you not. all about it later because that's that yeah. was my high school. <laughs> I need to leave vicariously through you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do remember I do remember graduating from high school and walking out of my graduation and just feeling this immense amount of pressure that every every decision I made from that point forward was going to affect the rest of my life in this really eternal way. And mm-hmm. so if I wore the wrong thing, then that could potentially be a distraction for my future husband. And perhaps he would not think I was a spiritual enough person and pass me by and then I would be single for the rest of my life. And it was this kind of just like almost like catastrophizing of every single choice. And I, it it almost like descended on me the moment I graduated, um, which created a lot of anxiety, Mm. um, as one can imagine. And so, um, I ended up staying around my hometown for a variety of reasons. After I graduated, I went to a community college. Um, I ended up starting to work at a church in a paid ministry position. Uh, I worked with the middle school youth group beginning as an assistant and then worked up to more of a director role. And um, again, had some wonderful experiences and skills that I I gained, but um, ultimately ended up leaving that situation because it was very, very spiritually abusive. I didn't Mm. have words to describe it as such at the time, but I can still viscerally remember the first time I ever experienced spiritual abuse. And the only words I had for it was, um, this is church politics. And it felt really gross inside my body, but I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't advocate for myself because I didn't know what to advocate for. Um, I knew I felt really scared. I knew I felt a lot of shame. Um, but I also had 
been taught that this is your spiritual authority and you don't question them. They are the voice of God. They have a special ear to God. And, um, and so I just, um, I, I don't don't say let it happen because it this was very you know it's a dynamic of power and control but I just I had to remain silent for many years, um, and I worked in that position for about four to five years before I finally um, left the church and I actually tried to leave the community um, that I was in, and because of the immense amount of power and control that they wanted to. Um, kind of lord over everybody, um, I ended up not being able to move away um, because they called all the schools that I was applying to, all of the jobs I was applying to, and essentially blacklisted me saying what? that I should not Jeez. be able to be there. And so I was stuck in this community with a Christian ministry degree, knowing that there was nowhere that I could ever do anything because I was a woman and now I was blacklisted and that um, was terrifying. And so um, it eventually uh, led me to Liberty University, which no is way. problematic for oh. so many reasons. Oh. Yeah. yeah well, I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't e publicize that a lot. <laughs> Yeah. You didn't experience hell in high school, but you went to hell for college. Oh right. Gosh. Yeah. So, well, and I went there for my master's degree. And st okay, so during better. the time I worked at the church, I, I did complete my four-year degree in Christian ministry and Bible. Um, when I left, I realized like I, there was, I had very, very limited options. So it led me to Liberty for their master's degree program. I will say educationally wise, I feel like I got a really good education. Um, there's, there's nothing because it's not, it was not a Christian counseling program. It was a, mm. a, an accredited program where they have to meet national standards and whatnot. I felt very well prepared. Um, but it was really the first day of classes at Liberty that I really started deconstructing the, um, when it, my professors said something and I thought, if if what he's saying is true, I have to start rethinking almost everything. Um, because for me, it was about going, if I'm going to really look at people and help people and see their stories and um, and kind of meet them in that, then the ideas that I've had about people, they don't fit any longer. We can't put people into these boxes of black and white. There's so much more nuance. It's not as simple as I've been told. And so, you know, funnily enough, Liberty University, for day one of classes, that's that's where the deconstruction process began. Um, <laughs> that's you know. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, eventually, um, you know, as that program went on, I was able to ask a lot more questions. And, and by that point too, I was able to have, um, the projection of a career that didn't require me to stay in that community. So I ended up moving across the country to Nashville, which is where I'm at now and have been for the past, um, 11 or 12 years. I can't remember. Um, but since that point, you know, I, I got licensed as a therapist. I, you know, went back to school eventually for my PhD um, and and obtained that. But within that time, not only was I personally deconstructing um, and and doing a lot of my own trauma work because I was recognizing what was happening, um, I started to recognize this as clients were coming into my office, that this was not something that was just me. When I began deconstructing, like social media wasn't a thing, podcasts weren't a thing. I truly believed that I was the only one who was asking these questions or I'd 
experience things like that. And so, um, you know, as luck would have it and as technology came out, we started hearing these different stories and people saying, well, I've, I've had that experience too. And somehow people were landing in my office going, I've experienced some really bad things in my church and I need help with it because it's it's not okay. Um, and then, of course, we had the 2016 election where we started to see just this massive outflux of people. And I think that's when it started to become a bit more um, visible in the on the radars of therapists and people in the field of mental health because mm. we were seeing there's this whole group of people coming out that have a lot of adverse religious experiences and are experiencing a lot of residual effects and we need to start creating resources to help them. Um, and so that's kind of transformed into everything that you introduced me with, you know, Religious Trauma Institute, Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, and um, and leading us up to the present moment. So did you get your PhD then specifically in religious trauma or like how did you start gaining all this knowledge on how to treat religious trauma? So my PhD is actually in mind-body medicine. I thought about doing psychology, but I was like, eh, I want to do something different. I'm already a therapist. Like I have that. I want the mental health piece of it, but I did mind-body medicine but it allowed me to explore different um, different aspects of the mind and body. I, I think we'll probably get into like what is religious trauma later on in the in this um, interview. But I started doing a lot of work as a therapist in the in trauma, like doing research and reading and working with clients who had a lot of trauma. And what I was able to see very easily was that my clients that were coming in that were talking about these spiritually abusive situations and these bad church experiences, what was happening in their body was the exact same as what I was seeing in my clients that had PTSD from more like what we would consider traditional, you know, kind of traumatic events, you know, war, developmental trauma, sexualized violence. And I was going <clears throat> and I was able to see like my client who's experienced X, Y, or Z or gone through this, this, you know, church um, thing, or even believing these doctrines, their body is responding the same way as my other trauma clients. And so I was able to kind of put some pieces together and then as the research in just the field of trauma and working with other clinicians has evolved, we've been able to say like, oh, like this, how religious trauma manifests itself in the body is the same as how any trauma manifests itself. And I say that because there's actually no, no official program or degree or anything, or there's not even a diagnosis for religious trauma. So there's no, there's very limited research out there, very limited clinical interventions that are specific to religious trauma, which is part of the reason why I'm in this field trying to do this work, both in terms of bringing awareness, but as but resources, mm. um, both to clinicians and survivors as well. Mm -hmm. Well, so I think that's one of the things I've heard is because it's not, it doesn't have a diagnosis or it's mm -hmm. not official that it's just like made up or like Mm -hmm. Almost even sometimes that attitude of like, oh, those snowflake millennials, they just need a <laughs> diagnosis for everything. And they think everything that ever mm -hmm. happened to them was harmful to them. And, mm -hmm. you know, like it's kind of more of that bypassing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, absolutely. You know, so like what, what do you how do we how could someone who is more like me who hasn't studied this, but very much like the more I learn about it, the more I'm like 
oh yeah, I think I have some of that. How do, how could we talk to someone who's just very much like, oh, you're making that up or that's not real. Mm. And you just want to, like, you just want people to feel bad for you. Yeah. I think that's a great question because to your point, like it's incredibly prevalent. Um, you know, what I tell everybody is religious trauma is trauma. And, and so essentially religion or religious becomes an adjective to just help us further describe the context with which, in which the trauma took place. Mm. Um, just like we would say sexual trauma, trauma from war, developmental trauma, where we, we aren't questioning like the experience or how it's living in your body. We're just going like, oh, if, if a person has trauma from war, we can expect that th- some of the symptoms will be this, you know, and some of them will be very general to trauma and other things will be a little bit more specific to those coming out of war. Um, you know, oftentimes when we're working with survivors from war that have PTSD and trauma, we're having to deal with different types of like hypervigilance or um, loud noises um, that can bring up triggers and, and and trauma responses. And that might not be as prevalent in something like religious trauma, but how those triggers live in the body is the same. And so when people are saying, well, you just need a diagnosis, you're just, you know, you just need to call everything harmful and whatever. I mean, I, I, I know like culturally sometimes that happens. Um, but I would say when we start to really understand what trauma is and how it lives in the body, we can understand that there trauma can be the result of from anything. It doesn't have to just be some of these more uh, colloquially accepted experiences like a car accident or childhood, you know, abuse. It really could be everything. Trauma is not an the event that happens to us. It's the way that our body or our nervous system responds to the event or the experience that happens to us. So it's anything that's too much, too soon, too overwhelming, too fast, too dangerous, where our body kind of loses its ability to return back to its normal sense of coping. And if that's what trauma is, then really, truly anything could be traumatic, but no thing is inherently traumatic, if that makes hmm. sense. Um, yeah. And so we yeah, have no, to really, yeah, that's why the, the term tra- trauma-informed is so important because it's recognizing that we all have different nervous systems and it's very, you know, it's very subjective in terms of how our bodies respond to different things. And when we can see through that lens of like how our body is responding, it shifts, it shifts the way that we interact with people. Hmm. So can you give us um, some examples? I know we've kind of danced around this already, but for someone who is just wondering, gosh, was I a victim of spiritual Mm. abuse or religious trauma? And and again, it sounds like that you just said that it it can be different for for all of us. It doesn't have to be um, a big T trauma, but from from some of the things that you've seen from your patients, um, Mm -hmm. what are some examples that stuck with them that impacted them and harmed them personally and spiritually and, and emotionally? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's, you mentioned, you know, big T trauma and, and I think, you know, that's a very common phrase in the trauma world, big T trauma, little T trauma. Um, that's not a way to compare and to say one is better or worse than the other. Um, but sometimes when we talk about big T trauma, we're talking about what we would consider shock traumas. So in the context of religious trauma, that could be something like clergy sexual abuse. It could be something like, um, 
maybe there's a ritual, you know, like I think of different like cults or religious groups that have very scary rituals that they perform um, in, in a group context or something where we're looking at, there's this like event that happened that was really big and threatening and overwhelming. It could be something like an altar call, um, where Mm. depending on what the preacher is saying, it feels really scary and overwhelming to your system. And so typically when we're talking about a big T trauma, we're talking about an event that happened, this thing that happened that my nervous system was like not able to recover from. I felt, I felt danger in such a way that I couldn't come back to a place of safety where I, or where I felt connected to those around me or well, where I felt like I was able to find a sense of stability within myself, which I know those are some trauma or therapy words, but, um, so we do have some of those big things where you talk about like, what, what are some things that would constitute as trauma or uh, could lead to trauma? Um, but then we also, when we're talking about religious trauma, have a lot of other things that maybe would traditionally be fitting into that small T trauma, but where we're talking about like consistent and pervasive threats over time, um, where we don't have the ability to escape or to do something different. And so I think about a lot of people who have grown up in these systems where they're being taught things like the doctrine of hell that to a three or four-year-old could find sound absolutely terrifying. And it's their caregiver or their pastor or somebody that's been told they can trust and has their best interests at heart is teaching them these things. So not only does this feel scary, the person that I would look to to help me feel safe is the one that's that's teaching me this. And so I feel, I feel an immense amount of fear perhaps. And maybe it's not so obvious as like the doctrine of hell, but maybe it's statements of like, well, you know, don't you want to be with your family when you die? Um, Mm. for a three Mm. or four year old, that could be really, really overwhelming to think of because there's no ability to like contextual or like put context around that or, or think through that because their brains just simply aren't developed. And so, you know, I, I think that when we look at specific doctrines, things like hell, the, do, you know, different, uh, I think about, I grew up very Calvinistic or, you know, my theology background is, is Calvinism. And so I'm this sorry. idea, I thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sorry too. <laughs> Um, but I, I which think is a, about, which is yeah. actually a traumatizing theology. Oh my in gosh! Its yeah, entire structure and makeup. It's hundred percent authoritarian, control based, fear based. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could go well, on, but the damage done to the church yes. by Calvin is is staggering. Yes. Well, and when you look at just the first the first uh, step in Calvinism, the T, total depravity, and you're being mm-hmm. taught that from the very moment you were born, the first breath you take, you are this sinner who is. Um, yep. completely depraved. There's nothing good in you. You are not worthy. Like that can absolutely, like imagine how that can um, shape your entire outlook on life and your body, your nervous system is operating under this extreme amount of fear that nothing I ever do is good enough. And I'm always one step away from con- uh, eternal conscious torment. Um, that's a terrifying God way is- to live. Yeah, and God is eternally angry with you. You're oh, simply yes. trying to live yeah. your life to find yeah. some moment of appeasement to this wrathful, vengeful mm-hmm. God who's looking at you in disdain. I yes. mean, that's absolutely. I, I, I think that so many of us grew up with that version of ourselves yeah. and God, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even if you didn't grow up formally in the Calvinistic theology tradition, I think that there's a whole lot of churches that teach an iteration of that. 
um, that sets the tone for everything else. Um, everything else that's built off of that. And so then when we get things like purity culture or other, you know, like missionary work or whatever, it all, it's all hinging on some of these really foundational doctrines. And so that's what makes it easy to believe some of this stuff, to act out some of this stuff. And it's what it makes it so difficult to, um, to heal from some of this, because when we've been taught Um, from the moment we're born that we're a sinner and we're this evil person, that becomes ingrained, wired into us where our body is believing us. It is an embodied belief. And that means that simply shifting our beliefs to say, oh, I'm not that way. I am worthy. Or, you know, this thing that I used to believe was a sin. It's not a sin. Like our body still has very visceral embodied trauma responses when we do those things or do things that are opposite of what we were taught because of the way that not only that it was taught to us, but the consequence that was also taught to us for if we didn't believe or went if we went against that belief. Mm. So I know that's really heavy. I don't know if I'm making complete sense. Let me know if I need some more clarification because it's just, it's a heavy, intense topic. Yeah. Well, I... Along those same lines, I think, I think there's a lot that's not, it's not necessarily like obvious or like based in like, okay, well, you're going to go to hell. And so you're going to be tormented forever. It's, Mm -hmm. it's more, um, it's little things like, like, uh, how people respond when you say, oh, I'm sad or I'm going Mm. through a tough time or I'm struggling with this temptation or that temptation or whatever it is. I feel like so, so many of those kinds of responses are for a lot of us anyways, cause trauma and we just had no Mm -hmm. idea. Um, Mm -hmm. and we, we just thought like, that's, that's the right way that a Christian responds or that's, um, like that, that's how God wants us to respond. Um, Mm. you know, those kinds of things. So, Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about how that's kind of baked into a lot of ways that people practice Christianity and then also maybe beyond that, like some symptoms of n- how you know that you have trauma? Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder, too, if it would be OK to introduce a term that one of my colleagues and I, a couple of colleagues and I have wor- been working on called adverse religious experiences And um, it speaks to this because, you know, earlier I said um, trauma is not the thing that happens to you, but the way our body, our nervous system responds to the thing that happens to us, which means that, you know, what is traumatic for you may or may not be for me and vice versa. And that can happen in a religious context as well. So you might have a sibling that grew up in the same home learning the same thing that has a very different experience of that. Um, and, and that we can go into that more when we talk about like, what is, what are some of the symptoms of it? But there's also, I think it's fair to talk about like, even if something does not result in trauma, like having trauma responses or this long lasting, um, kind of impact, things can still be harmful. And, and so we've introduced this term adverse religious experience where we're talking about any experience of like a religious belief practice or structure that undermines an individual sense of safety or autonomy and negatively impacts 
their physical, social, emotional, relational, or psychological well-being. And so that could be like you were saying, Melanie, the responses that we're having, you know, I'm sad and we over spiritualize it or spiritually bypass it to say, well, that means you're not trusting in God enough or you need to do this or that. Um, And it really kind of brings on a sense of shame that there's something I've done to cause myself to feel sad that is also connected to sin somehow. And that can be, those responses over time can be incredibly harmful because they do strip you of your autonomy and your sense of self because you're learning to not trust yourself then that these very real human natural responses are not real and human and natural, but they are instead sinful. And that can, over time can create um, a, a sense of, you know, loss of confidence. This, so you're, uh, question about symptoms, but loss of confidence, um, loss, of, lack of ability to trust in oneself, needing to look constantly for external, to external authorities to determine um, what I should do and how I should live. Um, it can it can look like a pervasive sense of shame or guilt that you're constantly living in because you can't seem to do anything right and you're in constant need of repentance. And so I think it's important to be able to say that even if those uh, those experiences don't lead to this pervasive sense of trauma where we're seeing these really like long-term impacts of hypervigilance, uh, pervasive sense of fear, um, inability to find a sense of internal safety, feeling like the past is the present, like those experiences are still valid and, and they're still oftentimes needs to be healing from them. So, um, I know I'm kind of like wrapping those questions together, but when we talk about, you know, symptoms of religious trauma, they're going to look like, um, symptoms of, of any trauma. It lets you see, you know, uh, feelings of helplessness, powerlessness. There's other, um, it, it might look like gastrointestinal dis- uh, disorders or autoimmune diseases, social phobias, sexual dysfunction, anxiety, depression, OCD. All of these things can be symptoms of trauma. I want to be careful to give like a really, and not give like a concrete list of here's the symptoms of trauma, because since trauma is so subjective, like we talked about what's traumatic for you may or may not be for me, how it manifests in our body can also be very subjective. And so um, for some people that might look like a deep, deep, deep depression, whereas other people that might look like really high functioning what or what we would think is high functioning and highly productive, but that's actually maybe a person living in a constant state of like a flight response. And so it can look a variety of different ways um, in terms of like, uh, how do I know that I'm, I'm living with trauma? But, but really, one, some of the telltale signs are like, how do I feel in my body? Do I, do I feel like there's a constant sense of desperation, anxiety, that it, like I don't feel like I'm safe or I, I don't feel like it's safe to be here in this moment? Um, and we might start to notice some of those things. And that might be an indicator of, of trauma or it might be situational. Maybe, you know, I live here in the South. And so you go into a lot of public places and there's worship music playing. And I notice, oh, when I walk into this store and this this song is playing, my body tenses up. I start to sweat. I feel like I need to get out of there. That would be a trauma response. And we mm-hmm. might be able to kind of put some of those pieces together to say, something's not quite right here. Like my body is responding in such a way that would suggest perhaps it's not feeling so safe in this situation. 
I feel like though what you're describing is like like what I was told is like you shouldn't feel uh confident because you do yeah right. are a sinner <laughs> from the moment <laughs> yes or like that's should the whole feel point right shame. yeah and so then I'm like how and what yes. <laughs> and therein lies the the mind f <laughs> yeah. right because. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, and I think that's important when we look at groups, um, you know, one of the terms we're using a lot right now uh, in tandem with fundamentalism is high demand, high control. And it's this idea that there's these dynamics of power and control in play that we can use different tactics, physical, verbal, psychological, spiritual tactics to maintain a position of power and control in somebody's life. And that could be a specific person who's in power and control, or it could be a specific group of people that are in power and control. And they're essentially, um, if, if they're, if their motivation is to be in this, this position where they can be dictating, um, what life should look like for everybody else, then you can dictate, oh, you know, this isn't actually love. This other thing is love. And that's where we start to get mm-hmm. these really weird, um, you know, like, <laughs> like we're told suffering and, uh, you know, pain, that's love, right? Like, right. and, and it's like, that's part of where, where the mind fuck is because we know if once we get out of that, like actually it's the opposite, but that those are tools that keep people in, um, in, uh, systems like this that make it very difficult to get out or even be accurate about their experiences because they go, well, I feel a lot of pain right now, but I'm told that pain actually means that, that God is favoring me or that, um, I'm doing something right because, we aren't supposed to have this happy life here on earth. It's supposed to be about suffering. Um, I God, wish I had a I more mean, succinct answer. No, that. no, it, yeah. it's, it's the, it's the lived reality for many yeah. of us. And then, and then baked into that is the notion that you have to stay within the camp to get your solutions mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I, there is this entire anti-intellectualism that is right. woven into the very fabric of evangelicalism and, and mm-hmm. in particular psychology or mm-hmm. the academy where, wait a minute, we, we can't go to the secular world to, to find our answers because they are against us. We are being persecuted right. by them. Mm-hmm. So how do you help people who have been told well, you know, you might need counseling, but let's get Christian counseling by the <laughs> pastor. Biblical yeah. counseling. Yeah, let's get biblical counseling. Yeah. How do you break free of that for mm-hmm. someone very much like you who 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 finds themselves uh, trapped in this vicious mm-hmm. cycle of of I am poisoning you, and I also have the antidote for you. Yeah, that's 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 really yeah. what's happening from a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It it is hard because it differs for everybody. Like part of me is like, well, how, what was the thing for you? Or, you know, what was the mm-hmm. thing for me that, that let us out? And a lot of times it has to do with cognitive dissonance where we're all of a sudden struck of like, huh, uh, that doesn't make entire, like a lot of sense. My experience, somebody else's experience, like that doesn't it doesn't seem to line up and we can have these like little tiny moments where we 
give ourselves the opportunity for curiosity to consider something different. And sometimes, sometimes we can't do anything with it because it feels too much to actually like let ourselves carry on with that. Um, it would be too much to actually allow ourselves to think about, well, if that's true, then this means this, or this means this, because we realize there's too much at stake if we were to go down that path. Um, and so when we talk about people that were like in a situation of feeling trapped, like, like myself of going like, I'm trying to get out of this community and I can't, um, you know, I, it's, it happens in the very, very tiny moments and it's different for everybody else. And it, I mentioned the word curiosity where all of a sudden we, we let ourselves go like, well, well, that's interesting. That doesn't match kind of my experience and maybe I don't do anything with it, but maybe I can just kind of like note it. Um, maybe I can, maybe I can like not dismiss it entirely. Like I've been taught to, um, you know, one of the things, so I started, whenever I started as a therapist, I, um, worked with a lot of domestic violence victims and I, and I still do. Um, but one of the ways that I really started deconstructing myself was because I was in a domestically violent relationship. Mm -hmm. And when I got out of that, I was unable to see the difference between what my earthly partner was saying to me and what God was saying to me. Mm -hmm. um, so when he would tell me, you are unworthy and awful and stupid, I was like, well, that's not that far off from like what I learned about myself from God. And yeah, so it sounds like the Old Testament, right? Right. <laughs> right. And so at some point it it felt safer to at least sit with that and go, well, well that sucks. Um or that makes sense why it would have been so easy to be in this abusive relationship because it wasn't hard for me to believe him. This is what I've always believed. Um and so I think we all have these little experiences where we have these moments to be like, huh, that's really interesting. And when I work with my um, domestic violence clients, and I do this a lot with religious trauma too, one of the, the things that we work on first is not getting out of the relationship. It's actually finding your voice again and going, mm -hmm. what do you think? What do you want? And it, sometimes it's really, really difficult. At the beginning, it's always really difficult because it's covered by this abusive person, this other, you know, this partner who's abusive and it's their voice. But the more we continue to stay with it or stay with that, little pieces will pop up and they'll, they'll be able to have these little moments where they're like, well, actually, no, I don't really think that's okay. And I, I don't know how to explain it for my situation but I think I can say that that's not okay. And I found the same is true in religious trauma as well, where it's where when we come back to personal autonomy and voice, if we if we let them if if they'll allow themselves to sit long enough to have some to like for all the other voices to clear out, they might be able to have a brief moment where they'll go, yeah, I don't. I don't know that that's right. I don't know what to do with it. And I think I have to actually like just keep believing this thing over here. But I can at least start to give myself permission to consider there's something, there might be something else there. Um, yeah, I, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I have yeah. to like, it's such, it's such a long process and it takes such a long time. But I found the more that we can come back to building a sense of autonomy and voice, 
um, that sometimes can be one of those first steps out to allow people um, just like a little bit of a safer way to start mm-hmm. considering something different. In uh, in some of the therapy that I've been doing recently, um, mm-hmm. my therapist is just giving me permission to trust myself, to yeah. notice my body, to feel, as you said earlier, feel things that are in my body and then ask myself the question of why are you feeling that? I wonder why it's mm-hmm. manifesting there and in and, and, and beginning to to build back autonomy and, and control mm-hmm. and ownership over myself because authoritarian evangelicalism strips that from you completely. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that might, that, that at least for me has been one of the first steps toward potential healing is just realizing mm-hmm. that I'm not bad. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily need someone outside of myself I don't need yeah. an authority figure to tell me what's good and bad. I have I have it all in me to figure those things out myself and to yeah. take back that power that was so stripped away. And, and then you begin to see the resentment and the anger and the rage when you finally mm. recognize like, man, I was, I got really messed up by this. So yeah. Are there mm. areas that um, if you are a- awakening to trauma, and you're beginning to see that your reaction to um, an event that is triggering is either fight, flight, or or fuck it. Then <laughs> what? I mean, that's you know what? Yeah. Um, what do we do to kind of bring mm. back some power to ourselves, mm. not in a domineering way, but just as a protective yeah. way? Because we're, I feel like that we're always constantly like a little scared rabbit. You know, yeah. what do I do yep. next? What do we do now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I know yeah, it was 14 it, questions, but no, I, I think it's, it's excellent because, you know, so often when things happen to us that are overwhelming, like we talked about too much, too soon, too fast, too dangerous, like our body has a million different things going on physiologically that are far beneath our, our consciousness. Right. But, but when these things, ha- when these experiences happen that overwhelm us and we don't have a way to come back to a sense of safety, um, for whatever reason, that energy continues to live inside of our body. And that's where we get things like PTSD and CPTSD because it's that trauma energy that's living active inside our body. And that's where we see the hypervigilance and all these other symptoms that it's it's manifested as. And so when we do trauma resolution work, sometimes the simplest way to say like, what is trauma resolution? It's like being able to do the thing that we didn't get to do back then that we should have been hmm. able to. Hmm. And so they're often, you know, when we when we notice in the present moment, oh, like my, this thing is happening. I'm, I'm feeling really triggered. My heart is racing. I'm sweating. Like what I wish I could do right now is scream. No, that's usually an indicator of what your body wanted to do back then, but wasn't allowed to do. And so, um, sometimes I would say, depending on our context, you know, we always have to be careful about the environment that we're in, making sure that it's actually safe it would maybe be appropriate to scream and say no and be Mm. able to do that thing. Um, Oftentimes our body's not necessarily looking for this huge cathartic release. It's just looking for ways to like move the energy through us. And it might mean that's through crying, through shaking, through um, some movement. Sometimes it means 
you know, what we really needed back then is we needed somebody safe to connect to, to hold us and remind us that we are safe, that, that the thing isn't happening to us now and, Mm -hmm. and our body can resolve it that way. And so, um, I think that the more we are able to learn our bodies and listen to our bodies, there is to your point, Gary Allen, like this intuitive piece of like, this is what my body is needing right now. And, and I think I could give my body that in a way that would feel safe and helpful um, and, and not feel like it's putting me back in a place of danger. And I say that because sometimes at the beginning of trauma resolution work, like it, it really can feel scary. Like why, you know, it feels scary to, to say no, or it feels scary to trust my body or to even listen to my body. And so there's a patience process that goes along with that. But, um, but to your point, when you're like, when I want to just be like, fuck it, it's like, well, that might just be your body telling you what you need, Mm -hmm. um, what you need to do that you never got to do back then. It it does feel like that our bodies are trying to, um, scream at us. I need equanimity. I need balance. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if I've gone way off over here, somehow I've got to bring myself back. And and I think we, we have that within us and maybe Mm -hmm. we can talk about that in a bit as it relates to, to healing. Yeah. 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 Well, that's where I was going to, that's what I was going to ask is how do we heal? Um, maybe not just from like, like one specific instance or of trauma, but Mm -hmm. like fully heal from spiritual abuse one does it require therapy because i think there are a lot (laughs) of us who are at a point of i can't afford that right now i mean Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. covid and jobs are terrible and all kinds of stuff um and then two does it require us to leave Christianity or religion Mm -hmm. or or Mm -hmm. fundamentalism behind altogether? Like, does it mean we have to lose our faith? Mm. I I guess maybe that's a question for you because we didn't ask you Mm -hmm. that. Like, did you lose your faith in this process as well? Yeah. um, Yes, that's a complex question personally (laughs) and professionally. Um, The short answer, well, so for me is yes, but the answer for everybody is no. (laughs) Um, what I mean by that is I don't think I am not a person who would, would say I'm anti-religion. I, I think that there's, it's when we are anti-religious that there's a possibility that we could become just as fundamentalist on the other side of the spectrum, which Mm. also does not feel helpful. So I'm not anti-religion, but I am anti-harm, anti-power, anti-control, anti-abuse, anti-oppression, um, anti-injustice. And so, um, if there is a spiritual or religious context that you can engage in, um, or even practices that you can engage in that don't have those components to it, or that allow for freedom of choice and autonomy for you to show up as yourself, that doesn't require you to subscribe to this rigid set of beliefs and values or else, you know, and, and then fill in the consequence, then I would say that is wonderful. And and I would love to celebrate that with you in finding what that what that looks like in a meaningful way for you. Um, some people will say, I, I've been too harmed that there's no way I can find something like that. Um, and that's, that's okay. And other people would say, I've been able to find a version of this that works for me. And that's okay too. 
Um, other people would say, you know, I need to take a break or I need to take a step back from certain uh, churches, denominations, practices, and maybe I can step back into them later. I'm always going to be careful to not prescribe like this is what it has to look like because every person is different. I do think it can be really difficult to heal in the context where the harm and abuse has mm. happened. Because when that's the case, our bodies are living in fight, flight, freeze, fawn. We're living in those trauma responses because when that's where the danger has happened, um, our bodies are like, yeah, this is not a safe place to be. And so oftentimes we do need to switch that place up so that we actually have the ability to heal in a way that feels lasting for us. And if that means that we re-engage with that context, environment, group, whatever in the future, that's great. Um, but sometimes we do need to take a break because we don't do well healing while we're in crisis. Um, and and so that's kind of the, the answer for that question is that you know, it depends on the person. And what I would also encourage people to do is like to not put an end goal on it and to say, um, I need to be able to walk back into a church and not have any sort of anxiety attached to it. And that's truly what healing is. Maybe, maybe that is what happens for some people, but when we put that on as an end goal and we're always trying to reach that and maybe we don't, that can actually breed a lot of shame um, for us and, and kind of sets us backwards um, in mm. terms of healing. Um, and then I can't remember exactly how you phrased the question prior to that, but like, what does healing look like? Um, does you it know, require I, therapy also? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And does it require therapy? Yeah. I tend to be of the mindset that healing is a lifelong process. And I don't mean that you have to be in therapy for the rest of your life or even ever. Um, I What I do mean is that when... I mean that healing doesn't necessarily have a static end point where you say, I'm putting a period at the end of the sentence. I am healed. Everything's good. I will never suffer again. Um, because that's just not how life works. Um, I do believe that trauma can be resolved, um, but also sometimes the the lifelong impacts of that is um, that doesn't mean that we're devoid of that. What I mean by that is I've done a lot of my own trauma work. I still get triggered. I still, you know, have to be really diligent about um, different pieces of self-care because because of the things that have happened to me and I've got to take care of myself in specific ways um, in order to be able to function at a level that feels really effective for me. And so um, for me, that's helpful to say like healing is this lifelong process. It also then gives me permission to celebrate every little tiny moment along the way um, where I'm really triggered and I'm able to handle it differently. And I'm like, dang, like I did awesome. That is mm. so great. Like that's a moment of healing for me. And, and even in the little moments where I'm like, oh, I wish I, I wish I could have like resourced myself differently here or whatever. It doesn't get me down in that same way. All of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, now I'm not healed and I've got to go back and do all this work. It's like, no, I just had a moment. Mm. And, you know, in the next moment, something different can happen. And so mm. in terms of therapy, you know, I think that therapy can be a really useful and sometimes necessary tool. 
to your point, it's not always accessible to people for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I'm, I'm not going to be somebody that says you must have a therapist in order to heal. I think there's some really unique things that can happen in the context of a therapeutic relationship, including access to different like modalities of healing. Um, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you can't do amazing work without a therapist. I truly believe that you can. Um, I think that we have a lot more resources available to us nowadays than even, say, 10 years ago, both about trauma in general, healing in general, religious trauma. Um, and I think that um, having access to that can be an agent of healing as well and can um can lead us into some really wonderful places. Um, I don't know if you guys have read the book, um, What Happened to You um, by Dr. Mm. Bruce Perry and Oprah. It, mm. um, it's a fabulous book. If anybody wants to read it, I would encourage you to listen to it on Audible instead of reading it because it's, it's really powerful. But Oprah, you know, as we've known, has had a, a very traumatic childhood. And in right. the book, she goes into it more in detail, kind of comprehensively, I think, than she probably ever has. And she's also very, very um, open in saying she's never been to a therapist. And yet she feels like she is living this healing life. Mm -hmm. And um, now we know Oprah has resources and ac um, access to people that maybe the everyday person doesn't. But I think it's really interesting because for her, she was able to find a community that felt safe and connecting to her at a very young age that she always had like a touch point to. And she could always go and experience a sense of safety that she's for the remainder of her life been able to touch back into um, whether it's through her best friend, Gail, or other people that have provided a sense of safety and connection um, that has allowed some of these big and overwhelming experiences to, to be resolved, essentially, um, where she's not living in that space of constant fight, flight, or freeze, or um, as if the past is in the present moment. And so I think she's also a great story of saying, Sometimes it's it's about the people you have around you and the and and feeling safe and supported by those people that helps your body heal itself and and that doesn't have to be in the context of therapy. Hmm. Well, because we always all of us have access to our own selves and yes. the present mm -hmm. moment. Um, and I do think that there are some really simple tools that that all of us can mm -hmm. use that are free. One of my, uh, the tools that my therapist has given me is just, you know, whenever I feel triggered, whenever I am about to allow my monkey mind to take mm. over and relive the past is to just get centered in the present moment. And, yes. you know, she, she's, she has really taught me like, okay, stop and engage yep. your senses. So what mm -hmm. are, what are five things that you can see right now? Yes. And like, okay, yep. I see the tree. I see the mountain. What are four things I can feel? What are, what are three things that I'm smelling? What are, uh, you know, two things that, um, I and taste here. And, yeah. and hear. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. it's, it really has been such a simple free tool yeah. that yeah. allows me to go, okay, I I'm safe. Mm -hmm. I I'm, mm -hmm. I'm okay. Um, yes. Yeah. It's, yes. There's there's so many of those, and as you said, just 
with all of the general knowledge out there with with the new world that we live in with Zoom, mm-hmm. honestly, like the access mm-hmm. to groups and recovery groups yeah. and trauma groups that we can tap into um, is fairly limitless. And And I will mm-hmm. say that there is a lot of hope in the fact that we are living in a time where people like you are mm-hmm. doing the work, doing the mm-hmm. research for the rest of us to go, wow, mm-hmm. one, I'm not crazy. And two, there are yeah. other people yeah. That are like, here, come here. It's okay. You mm-hmm. know, come this way. Yeah. Um, yeah. 40 years ago, you're, you're yeah. on your own. Good luck. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. Oh, even 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, okay. I'm going to ask one, one question, even though we're getting too far into the time here. But I there's this is a question <laughs> that um, I really, and you don't have to like, give us a whole book on it. Um, (laughs) just even like a few ideas. Um, how do we, when we finally like are healing from our trauma and realizing how harmful some of the fundamentalist thinking is Mm -hmm. and, um, wanting to get away from the super like black and white thinking that Mm. is baked into fundamentalism and a lot of evangelicalism, how do we get away from fundamentalist thinking? Because mm. I feel like for mm-hmm. me, it's like, okay, I realized that that was harmful, but then I, it's so easy to just be like, oh, well, this person is good and that person is bad. And yeah, you know, whatever, whatever it is, put things into boxes, put things, make mm-hmm. things super dualistic. Um, or, or like even to just start categorizing the things that happened to me as, mm-hmm. as, uh, like, this was from God and this wasn't, you know, it's just so, it's so hard to get away from the fundamentalist thinking. So how do we start recognizing that and then start walking away from it? Yeah. Um, I always say like fundamentalism is like, um, a way that we try to keep ourselves safe. Um, like the, the way that we try to feel safe inside our body, like when we can neatly categorize things and make things into right or wrong, good or bad, that gives us the illusion of safety inside our body and outside of us. And so part of the reason why it can feel so daunting and difficult to walk away from fundamentalism is that we don't have these uh, neatly categorized boxes in our lives that give us this sense of safety. Um, The gray area feels uncomfortable and feels unsafe. And so, um, To that end, there's kind of two ways I would answer that question. And the first is um, similar to like what what Gary Allen was talking about is finding a sense of internal safety in in my body where I can like come back into the present moment. And so that's like using that grounding tool that you were talking about. There's a variety of other tools of going um, when I'm in the present moment and I'm not feeling so hijacked by fight, flight, freeze, fawn, these sorts of things, I oftentimes have a greater capacity to handle nuance and complexity. Mm. Um, Mm. I don't have to make such a definitive judgment. Um, But that requires me to be able to to be safe inside myself and not have to look to external uh, authorities or structures to tell me what is safe or to Mm. tell me what is good or bad. Um, So there's that piece and the embodied piece really is, is very, very important. Um, And then the other piece that I, if it, that I like to talk about, like with clients is this, the 
the simple, I say simple, but it's really not the simple question um, that ha- is laced with curiosity of what if, like, what if there is something different here? What if that there's another possibility that I'm not seeing? What if there's a third choice? Um approaching things with curiosity rather than rigidity, which sounds really simple. But when we talk about uh, fundamentalism being a way that we help ourselves feel safe, that implementation of curiosity actually can can feel like a really big deal. It can sometimes feel dangerous. And so um, to, to walk a, away from fundamentalism or to and to ensure that like we're not just falling into other fundamentalist ways of thinking or systems, um, I, the the implementation of curiosity, I think, is incredibly important to notice like, hey, I just noticed my my kind of instinctive or gut response to this was this. I wonder why that is. Um, Mm. is it because there really only is two choices and I have to pick the right one? Or is it because having only two choices feels safer? What if there was three choices or 10 choices? What if, what if both experiences could be true at the same time? Um, and that that's really hard stuff, but, but Mm. allowing ourselves to move into more of a space of curiosity can help us expand outside of that fundamentalist mindset and fundamentalist uh, way of thinking and patterns of relating to others. Mm. Well, that's super helpful. And now I feel like I have a lot to think about <laughs> next time <laughs> I, I'm i feeling um, super, super judgmental and black yeah. and white in my thinking, which happens all the time because yeah, it's, sure. you know, how, how most of us who came out of this background were raised. Um, yes. And mm-hmm. I feel like we could talk about so much more, so much more. I mean, like <laughs> Always, talking about yeah. the power and control dynamics or, yeah. or staying in relationship with people who are still in those religious mm-hmm. systems or, mm-hmm. or even how to set boundaries for preventing yes. abuse in the future. Like all of these things yeah. are things we could talk about. So I guess we need to have you back yeah. for eight more episodes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Season three. All of yeah, it. Yeah, all of I'm it. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> we have a new co-host. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I love it. But since we're running out of time and you have all sorts of things to do, uh, <laughs> I do want to ask you the question we try to ask everyone, which is when you look at the future of faith, and especially as it relates to trauma and healing from trauma and walking away from the more harmful systems. Is there anything that gives you hope? Oh yeah. All of this gives me hope. Um, the fact that we are sitting here today having this conversation and talking about like in a free way, being able to talk about, uh, here's what has actually happened. And I don't have to um, mask my story and I don't have to pretend that it wasn't that bad. And I have like support around me that I can lean on to help me go through this. Um, that gives me a lot of hope. Um, one of the things with trauma and I would put, you know, like so prevalent in religious trauma is this idea of isolation is that I'm all on my own. Nobody else gets this. Nobody else understands. And that isolation can breed so much shame and Mm. further isolation. And so the fact that we 
have these communities now that are not perfect. And sometimes they recreate a lot of trauma and a lot of weird dynamics. Mm. But the fact that we can like have these conversations and that we have resources to point people towards and other people to say, I get it. I've been through that too. I can validate your experience. Gosh, that gives me so much hope because Mm. we didn't have that before. And so to know that you're not alone and that there's other people here is, I think, a reason to take hope and to celebrate and to be emboldened to tell your own story and to find the healing that you need. Mm. Wow. I love it. All right. So that was the end of our like serious questions. We, we, okay. would love to, <laughs> we would love to just ask you like three or four rapid fire fun questions okay. <laughs> to kind of, cause this has been, this has been pretty heavy. So let's sure, end with some fun. Sure. So, yeah. All right. Okay. So just for, first thing that comes to mind. Um, so the first question Yes. You mentioned you live in Nash Vegas. So uh-huh. what's your favorite thing about living in Nashville? <laughs> Thinking about moving. Um, no, <laughs> <I'm just> <laughs> no um, you know, I, I, I actually am, I love the outdoor life here um, in terms of not always the humidity, but I love that year round I can be outside and um, I've been a big fan of being in nature and Nashville absolutely allows for that. Hmm. Uh, I probably should say the music scene, but um, (laughs) that's, that's only partially why I like living here. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The outdoor stuff. That's probably what I like most. Definitely nice. not something I think of when I think of Nashville. So that's really I interesting know. to hear. Well, coming from Minnesota, where so many months out of the year, oh, it's like you had right. to be inside. I mm-hmm. I walked, uh, there's some trails by the river, and I love that Like I can walk them in January and February. And it's cold, but it's not like, you know, I'm about to get frostbite. <laughs> So yeah, that's I lived what in, I love. I lived in South Dakota for a while. And so yeah, I know exactly, yeah. well, and I, I was in Minnesota a couple times, not really over the super cold months, but mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Second question. Yeah. What's one book on spiritual abuse or religious trauma or something related to that that you wish everyone who comes out of fundamentalism could read? Ooh, um, I I would actually go out just like a book, like a, just a trauma book in general. And I would say in an unspoken voice by Peter Levine. Um, Mm. yeah, hands Mm. down that that's the, the book that I would recommend to everybody. Okay. I'm going to put that in the show notes so everybody can Mm -hmm. find it. (laughs) Yes. So you mentioned earlier the notion of self-care. What, what's one of your favorite ways to take care of yourself? Yeah. So walking, um, walking, being in nature is probably one of the biggest ones. Um, I also, you know, it sounds so silly, but like I've really had to spend a lot of time learning how to take care of basic needs. Sometimes that's not always taught in, uh, homes the way that I grew up in. Uh, so things like cooking for myself, learning how to like take care of my home, those sorts Mm. of things, those have all been really important in my own self-care. Um, And also, um, I have a really, really wonderful group of friends that's taken a long time to develop because 
building friendships as an adult is really difficult when you're not inside the church. Um, And so it sounds weird for like self-care, but that is definitely something that like gives me a lot of life. And then in terms of what I would consider a spiritual practice for myself is journaling. Um, That's something that I I do a lot of my own self-care, self-therapy is through the the pen and paper. Mm. Mm. Well, okay. Obviously your whole entire life is not just about yes. psychology. <laughs> so what's what's a hobby or an interest that you have that has nothing to do with your work? I love dancing. Um, and my dog does not love when I dance in front of her. Um, but I actually um, am trying to or hoping to get back into ballroom dancing. Um, oh, wow. I just moved a couple of months ago and there is a ballroom dancing studio like a mile down the road for me. And that was actually something I did years and years ago. I was training to be a professional ballroom dance instructor. And for a variety of reasons, it didn't work out. Um, but I never lost the passion for it. So. Um, yeah, dancing. That's mm. probably what nice. I'd go with. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Nice. No one yeah. likes it when I when I dance in front of them. So <laughs> I, can, I can understand your dog. Yeah, she just runs away. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right, last last question. If you could spend one day in somebody else's shoes, who would it be and why? Oh gosh. Um <laughs> Speaking of my dog, can I use her? Because I'm like yeah, constantly, yeah. I am constantly wondering like what in the world she thinks of me or how she views life. Um, oh, yeah. Like, oh yeah. I put a lot of words in her mouth and I, you know, I pretend <laughs> that she dialogues with me. Um, but I would, I would say that um, I also, this is more general. I don't have a specific person in mind. I, um, in, a, in an exercise of empathy and compassion would also be interested to put myself in the shoes of somebody who I have a lot of differences of just to see mm. world the world through their eyes, uh, whether that mm. is a person of different skin color, gender, um, political affiliation. Um, I, I think it would be fascinating to see to see that through different different lenses. Mm. That's yep. brave. Uh, yeah, yeah only for a day, though. Like- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> Good yeah. point. <laughs> not, not super long. <laughs> well, Dr. Laura, thank you so much. This has oh, been you're welcome. really informative and yes. a lot of tools, a lot of practices and techniques, and a lot of hope for all of us who are coming out of evangelicalism. Mm. For, for so many of us who are listening, who want more from you, where can mm. they find out a little bit more about your work and your organization? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I am probably the most active on Instagram and I try to post there pretty much every day and usually do a lot of like Q and A's, uh, try to do those a few times a week or sorry, a few times a month where I answer therapy questions. Um, and so my handle is Dr. Laura E. Anderson on Instagram. And then, um, the company I run is the center, excuse me, for trauma resolution and recovery. And um, our website is traumaresolutionandrecovery.com. And that's our Instagram handle as well. We have individual and group coaching options. Um, so we we have like four different groups that are about to start in the next uh, probably six to eight weeks. And so I'm really excited about that. And then I also um, am the co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute. And our Instagram is Religious Trauma Institute. And that's our website as well. And that is um, hopefully as we continue to grow, we'll have more resources for 
mental health providers, coaches, pastors, advocates, researchers um, to help uh, kind of move this forward of religious or this um, area of religious trauma forward. Mm. Well, I'm going to make sure to put all of that in the show notes because thank you. People need to find that easily and quickly. So I will yeah. link to all that there. Um, yeah. But in the meantime, thank you so much. I, I think, hmm. I think even though um, there's a lot of people who are talking about religious trauma, it's, mm. it can be such a scary thing to think about, like, do I have that? And do these yeah. people that I love did, did they do that to me? Mm, um, and did so these people hard, that I yeah. trusted do that to me? So I think this is super helpful for some of us who are like, wait a second, um, to really just think about it and, and try to, um, assess our experiences, mm. but then also say, here's some simple steps and some simple ways to recognize it. And also then like, yeah. it's, you're not now, broken or beyond repair or no. there's yeah. not something wrong with you. Um, I think this has been so helpful. So thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate oh. it, Laura. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Laura. And that's all we have for you today. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And before you go, we'd like to ask you to consider becoming a Patreon patron of this humble little show. It may not seem like it, but it takes hours upon hours to create each episode and get them out to you each week. And whether you knew this or not, it's just me and Gary Allen with my husband, Josh, doing all the editing simply out of the goodness of his heart. So your contributions to the show will not only help us to continue producing quality content, it also gets you access to each show five days early you get exclusive content and first dibs on merch when we finally get to that point. Every little bit helps, so head to patreon.com slash holyheretics to become a patron. Thank you. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes, and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge. 